Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Kokoro Movement Podcast. On this episode, we have Dr. Ben Stevens. He is a chiropractor based out of Canada. He is the co-owner of Somatic Senses, which is a continuing education company, and he is the owner of the Vallejo Health Clinic. We had a really fun conversation, and I'm just going to jump right into it. Without further ado, Dr. Ben Stevens. How are you today? Doing absolutely fantastic. How about yourself? I'm doing really, really well. So uh, you're at a private beach. I want everybody to know that he paddled his paddleboard to a private beach, and I'm sitting here in my office with them cutting down a big, huge tree outside. So if everybody's wondering what that background noise is, it's a big tree being cut down. (laughs) Or it's the sound of seagulls and waves splashing on the beach, one of the two. Yeah, one's better than the other. I'll let you guys choose <laughs> which one you think is best. <laughs> so um, I'm going to get this podcast started. I stole a little something from a podcast that I listened to called the Never Quit Podcast, which is they call it the Mad Minute. So I'm just going to ask you kind of a bunch of random questions trying to get our brain firing first thing in the morning. Um, so the first one is, uh, what was the first car you ever owned? first car I ever owned was a a green CRV that I bought with cash from a present that my wife's grandmother gave us. Oh, right up. That's awesome. What's your uh, favorite place to travel? Favorite place that I have traveled, would like to travel? Uh, Let's go have traveled. Have traveled? Yeah. Um, I might say France. France. Okay. Yep. Uh, What's your favorite superhero? Ooh, favorite superhero. Um, I don't know if you can qualify him as a superhero, but Iron Man. Iron Man's a superhero for sure. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite food? Favorite food, steak. Steak, I like it. Uh, what's your favorite book? The War of Arts by Stephen Pressfield. Dang, you answered that real quick. Everybody else is like <laughs> having to take their time and think about it for a second. Well, I, I, I probably read about... I don't know, 50 books a year, if not more, and I've reread that one almost 20 times, so oh, I'd okay. say that counts as a favorite. <laughs> I would say that that counts as a favorite as well. So uh, let's give everybody um, a little background on who you are, and so let's talk about your origin story a little bit, um, like what got you interested in chiropractic care and uh, kind of how your uh, business has evolved since then. Oh, geez. Um well, the, the, I guess, abbreviated version is that I had never really been to a chiropractor most of my life. I uh, was not really exposed to chiropractic as a model in any way, shape, or form uh, up until I was about 19. I dislocated my shoulder in the gym, one of the millions of injuries I've had. I dislocated my shoulder just in kind of a, a weird twist. And um, 
it wasn't getting better for about a year and a half. I had seen pretty well everyone that I could uh, in the town that I grew up in on the east coast of Canada. And my then girlfriend, who's now my wife and has been for 13 years, said, why don't you come see my chiropractor? And I said, well, you know, he's a chiropractor. What, what's he even going to do? I saw a chiropractor here. He didn't do anything for me. And she lived two hours away. And so I, she goes, well, what do you have to lose? It's not getting better seeing anyone else. And so I said, yeah, you're right. So uh, every every Friday for a couple of months, I would leave work at noon and uh, drive two hours to go get one of the last appointments of the day with his chiropractor. And then over time, oops, <laughs> sorry, don't know if you hear that background, just uh, a uh, random pack of dogs decided to join me on the beach. <laughs> oh, right on. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah. So sorry for the interruption. But anyway, um, I ended up going to this chiropractor. Uh, the amazing thing is uh, he was 72 years old at the time um, and seemed like he was doing voodoo magic because he was not doing uh, anything I expected a chiropractor to do. And he did a lot of a lot of soft tissue work, even did some laser stuff, did some muscle testing, did some adjusting, did some reflex work, just a whole bunch of stuff that just confused the crap out of me. As a, I was 20 at the time. Um, and got my shoulder. I mean, the shoulder's never going to be 100% after you dislocate it and tear a bunch of stuff in there, but he got it back to about 95% after about six visits, and I was floored. And so I was a personal trainer at the time, had been very involved in kind of fitness and health culture up until that point. Um, and through uh, several turns of, a, you know, turns of events, I traveled around the world a little bit and ended up getting into a kinesiology degree, which I loved. And at the end of my kinesiology degree, I didn't really know what to do with it because uh, making a career as a personal trainer, I had figured out from doing it for five years already, was not that easy. Um, right. No, but I shouldn't say that it was all that hard. It was just, you know, not particularly lucrative. And a lot right. of the time it was, it was, it was getting pretty repetitive. Um, and so I went, well, what am I going to do now? Started exploring my options, looked at this, that, and the other thing. And my wife, again, you know, she's been a huge impact on a lot of the decisions in my life. She goes, well, why don't you become a chiropractor? And I kind of, in the back of my mind, even though I was a straight-A student, I never really identified myself as a doctor. And a lot of that because I was such an adrenaline junkie and I viewed kind of, you know, quote-unquote doctors as very responsible people taking care of other people and whatnot. And, you know, I was the guy that had dislocated and broken nearly everything in my body by the time I was 15. And right. uh, it was uh, it was kind of like an aha moment. It's like, yeah, you know what, why, why wouldn't I do that? That makes a lot of sense. And started looking into pretty well all the medical fields and realized very quickly that chiropractic would be by far the most interesting thing for me. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people, when they're telling the story, they, they kind of give the, oh, well, I really wanted to help people, and I really wanted to do this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, where if you really wanted to help people, you'd probably become a missionary or become Mother Teresa in some way, shape, right. or form. Um, and it, it's more of an added bonus that I get to help people. But I went to chiropractic school specifically because I found it extremely interesting. I wanted right. to have essentially a doctorate in the human body in some way, shape, or form. And anatomy was one of those things I really, really loved. And when I was comparing pretty well all the medical fields, I looked at chiropractic and went, man, they've got the most anatomy. They've got most of all the stuff that I want to study, a lot of the neuro, a lot of the anatomy. And that just, it, it jives with me and traveled around, visited schools. And a year and a half later, I was at school in California. Perfect. Um, so when you got out of chiropractor school, did you start your own business right away or did you apprentice under somebody or how'd that work? Uh, yes, I moved to the town that I'm in right now, Kelowna, British Columbia. It's uh, up in the mountains on a big, long lake. It's a beautiful town, and I moved here straight away from school and didn't know a soul here besides my wife and dog, who I brought with me, and were, our doors opened, let me see, six months-ish after we showed up. 
Perfect. And so how long did it take before you started getting really kind of steady clientele coming in there? Uh, I was fully booked in two months. Oh, okay, really. Um, were you wait, the wait. only chiropractor there? <laughs> you know what's really funny is that a lot of people say that because it's like you're in a small town in Canada. No, there were 65 of them here. 65, wow. Well, yeah, so, it's actually the, the second highest amount of chiropractors per capita in the country outside of another small town in BC. And one of the big reasons being it's, it's very much like a, it's a lifestyle town. It's like a resort town, you know. It's, right. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm standing on my own little private beach right now, and there's people wakeboarding along the lake in front of me, and there's, you know, snow-capped mountains in the background. Like, it's, it's a beautiful little town. But it had about 100,000 people and about 65 chiropractors, so it was actually okay. one of the most saturated places you could choose. Right. So the reason why I'm asking is because, you know, I'm a, a massage therapist and I'm in a, a pretty small town in Flagstaff, Arizona. And there's, you know, about 70 or 80,000 people here and there's just hundreds of massage therapists all over the place. So you're just trying to kind of find your niche and find, you know, practice your pitch and, and you know, build the culture that you want um, because you don't want to be having this regular client where you're just like oh my god this person's coming in today because then you'll start to have a bad day at work and then your day won't be your job won't be fun anymore so um what kind of what kind of culture did you create for yourself or did you have any kind of specific people in the population that you worked on so i i completely agree in that i'm um you know i i got into this a lot of out of interest and because i i wanted wanted to learn, wanted to go forward, and wanted to really do something I could make an impact doing. And I knew very early on that um, I was going to be involved in sport or fitness in some way, uh, and that's just because I had done that. I went to the, the gym for to kind of, you know, quote-unquote, weight lift or uh, do some bodybuilding at, like, 13, uh, and I loved it ever since. And so I was a trainer, and I was, uh, you know, continued to train in a lot of different ways all through school. And so I knew very, very much when I showed up here that a big, big part of what I was going to be doing was working with the, I would call fitness sports. And by that, I mean powerlifting, Olympic lifting, kettlebells, bodybuilding, CrossFit, a lot of those kind of realms, right? And a lot of that is just because that that was the background that I came from. And the really funny thing is now, it's actually, that's kind of become a popular thing to do is to, you know, for new chiropractic grads or massage grads or whatever, to show up to a town, go around to meet all the CrossFit gym owners, try to meet all the coaches of, of, of all these X, Y, and Z things. Um, but that was just, it was kind of the only thing I really knew how to do because yeah, I wasn't going to go do a talk at the running room because I hate running. I right. wasn't going to go, <laughs> just, you know, if, if I'm being honest, and I just, I didn't want to go do whatever I needed to do to get clients. I was not the type that was just going to kind of embrace the grind and hustle and, you know, betray what I really, really wanted, wanted out of my career. So, I I went around and I met all the people that were just doing stuff that I wanted to do, regardless of the fact of whether or not I was a chiropractor. So um, I had been Olympic lifting a little bit on and off through the years. Um, and so I showed up and like the third person that I intentionally met was my Olympic weightlifting coach, who is an Olympian uh, in lifting. And he's one of the best coaches in the country, just so happens to live here, which is very fortunate for me. So started getting into Olympic lifting. Uh, I was a kettlebell trainer, so I, uh, you know, hold the certifications in kettlebell training and started uh, doing kettlebell workshops and working with a lot of trainers. And it, it, it honestly, it just, it built itself. I, was, I had probably about five to 10 people a day that I was treating in the waiting room of my clinic before it even opened, purely because a lot of these people were like, no, you need to see that guy. You can't see anybody else. And a lot of it was, honestly, because I think most of the 
personal trainers and strength coaches and stuff kind of felt like I was one of the only tyros in town that really understood what they were doing. Uh, and that massively worked to my benefit. And I think a lot of other people kind of showed up, um, because even since I've been here, there's been probably 20 more chiropractors show up in the last seven or eight years. And uh, most of them show up and essentially kind of check all the boxes of what seems like the right thing to do if you want to work with an active population and, you know, do free talks at, at gyms and talk about weight loss and talk about how to train for low back pain and talk about how to X, Y, and Z. And, you know, they're, they're standing up there. They've never done it themselves. And right. they don't really know the nuances of it. And so I just essentially just refused to do that because I didn't, it didn't feel good to do it. But I just kind of, you know, when you're a new grad, you have enough of an imposter syndrome already. And I didn't want right. to move to a town where I knew, knew, knew no one, act like I was the best person in the world when I was, in fact, a new grad, and then go and talk about whatever it was, running or weight loss. You know, and I've, like, per- I've personally never struggled with my weight. And that's just, you know, because I, genetically I prefer to think that's probably why, but... I'm not going to get up into front of a group of people and talk for an hour about weight loss when I've actually never really had to work on weight loss. <laughs> right. And so it, it was really easy because I've had so many experiences in the fitness and health realm to really just focus heavily on those, um, and it worked just massively to my benefit very, very quickly. Right. So I think part of it is that you also participate so people see the benefits of the treatments that you provide because you're also participating in the activities that they're doing and so you know i don't get too many runners because i'm not a runner myself i'm more of the you know built like a bridge troll lift heavy things you know that's kind of my bread and butter um just kind of like you know similar so that's a lot of the people that i get um and i um very much agree kind of where you're coming from and so how has your what does a typical session with you look like then? Because we have, you know, I have a the chiropractic experience that I have in my town is the typical chiropractic experience where you sit in the waiting room for 15, 20 minutes, they take you back, do the typical adjustment no matter what your ailment is, and then you're off to the races, come back maybe once this week or twice next week, and that's kind of it. Um, but then yeah. I was taking a, uh, a DNS course, and met um, a chiropractor and one of my favorite people I ever parted, probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he's a chiropractor out of Boulder, and his name is Mitch Perez. And yep. he did um, a bunch of different um, muscle testing, like applied kinesiology on me. Um, yep. He did some dry needling, and then an hour later, popped one vertebrae at my occiput and was like, there you go, you're all set. And I was like, okay, what was that? What you know what I mean? So that's yep. kind of what I've been asking. Um, you know, all the different PTs and chiropractors that I talk to. Like, what does your typical session look like with people? So I, I don't know if I have a very good answer to that, purely because I don't know if I have a typical anymore. Um, I have some very intentional things that I set out at the start that were it had nothing to do with the pathology that a person would present with and they had to do more with uh more with trust building and making sure that the person knew that I had their best interest in mind and those are the kind of things that were standard for most of the years so like for instance one of the things that I insisted on when I opened my business is I don't want any other staff kind of bringing someone and putting them in an empty room and making them wait I'm the doctor and I'm going to walk wait out into that right out into that waiting room in front of everybody else shake that person's hand and say, come with me, let's go, and take them back myself. And it was they were either in the waiting room or they were with me. That was it. 
And that was just one of those things that we kind of started with and built these kind of systems and typical things, and they, they never really changed. So, you know, that was 2011, and here we are 2018, and we still do the same thing. Um, but a lot of what's happened in the treatment room as far as treating the actual pathology or whatever it might be or treating the person is quite variable. So when I first graduated from school, um, I was probably doing what a lot of young chiropractors were doing at the time or maybe a little ahead of the game on some of them. But, I mean, I was doing a ton of active release technique because 10 years ago that was, you know, everyone wanted to do ART. And uh, doing a ton of active release technique, I had been certified in graft and a ton of kinesiology taping. Um, I had worked loosely with rock tape a little bit at the start. And then uh, doing a ton of FMS and FFMA. So it was a lot of movement-based stuff. And so generally, uh, my first visit would be anywhere between an hour and two hours, usually closer to an hour if I could. Um, and that would involve, you know, probably a typical, a lot of the questions you have to ask. And then focusing a lot on what I would tell the patient is we're going we're gonna to look at two things. We're going to look at, at what hurts. You know, we're going to try to narrow it down to see if there's actually a pathology. Do you have a tear in something? Do you have something that's inflamed, something that's swollen, something that's, that's actually messed up? Because we want to know what's going on and what's causing your pain. And then on the flip side of that, we're going to go looking for the why. And we're going to go looking to see, well, you know, things heal. You know, if you've ever got a scratch on your knuckles and, you know, usually three weeks later it's gone, why hasn't this thing healed? Because the vast majority of people were not coming into my office in acute pain. Most of them were coming in with, my shoulder's been messed up for six months and it won't get better. It hurts when I do these things. And so we did the what, which was kind of the typical orthopedic exam, palpation, poking and prodding, trying to get precise. And then we do the why, which came in my world massively through the SFMA and a lot of um, meaningful past work. So, for instance, I have a guy who was a friend at one point who, who came in. He was a CrossFitter. He said, my back hurts. Do all this typical stuff. And I go, I can't really find a whole lot going on with your back. You know, what's the one thing that really flares it up the most? And he said, well, handstand. <laughs> and yeah. I'm going, why didn't I ask that at the start? You know, and I was like, here's <laughs> right. And I remember thinking to myself, because I asked a lot of questions like that, but I didn't ask, you know, the one question. Like, hey, what's the one thing? What's the big thing that really, you know, flares it up? And he said, handstand. So I go, well, let's do a handstand. So we actually spent most of our time on that session working on handstand technique. And I only ended up having to see, see him twice for that complaint, um, because once he changed up his handstand technique with a little bit of DNS principles and a, a few things from Olympic lifting that I had learned over the years, all of a sudden his back didn't hurt when he did handstand. So right. that was a very, you know, that's kind of one end of the spectrum where I actually didn't end up treating him at all hands-on-wise, um, even though he was open to it. I just didn't have a real need to because it was really all technique problems. And then all the way to the other end of the spectrum, I've had people that have, you know, spiral fractured this and had things screwed back together there. And on day one, it's literally extremely gentle soft tissue work, extremely gentle mobilization, coming up with a nutrition plan or an inflammation plan, working on swelling and those sorts of things. So I don't have a real good answer for you. I've rambled a lot for having no good answer, but um, no, no. I don't have a I don't have a good answer for you because it's it's widely variable. Um, right. And for the, a long time, the vast majority of my clients were coming to see me because they had already seen everybody else and were at wit's end. And then their trainer, their coach, their whoever was just like, just go see this guy. He'll figure it out. And I'd even get referrals from a lot of other uh, chiros in town, physios in town, uh, and those sorts of things. As that kind of guy that, you know, I just go to Ben, he'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So. so And sometimes that's the movement screen, right? So, like, you know, you can have this pretty standard movement screen for people, but then once they come in and they're like, well, this is what happens when I do an overhead squat. I'm like, cool, let's see you do an overhead squat and see what's going on there. 
And then you can yeah. start to look at their mechanics and then figure out where the dysfunction is and then fix that dysfunction and then have them try it again. Because once you try it again and then it doesn't hurt, then they're like, oh, okay, I'm better now. Because that's like yeah. back into like the, the biopsychosocial model, right? So like people tend to, if they feel pain during a certain movement pattern, then they tend to just avoid that movement pattern completely instead of figuring yep. out what's wrong. And then that's where we come in. And then once we get them to do that movement pattern without pain, then they can continue to do that movement pattern without pain, and then they're good to go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and a lot of it is, um, you know, it, it, the funny thing is I actually early on probably had more of that where there was things that were um, shockingly easy to figure out. And a lot of it was just because they hadn't really seen the right people to figure out their problem. You know, they had a problem that only hurt when they were doing handstands and they went to someone that, you know, had never been an athlete in their life, had never moved in their life and doesn't look at how people move. So it kind of worked to my advantage that a lot of those people showed up. Um, and it, over the years, it kind of evolved to be a little more medical, I guess. Uh, and by that, I mean a little less on the athletic front and a little more on the, you know, complex nerve problem or complex commutative fractures or strange rare diseases or that kind of stuff. And that's not the typical, but I, I you know, probably about 25% of my day is spent with people that have, you know, bilateral leg symptoms from some kind of some kind of spine problem that is not the typical or they're going to have, like I had a, had a client a few weeks ago that came in who she had a, a, me, a median nerve problem because she legitimately got stabbed in the median nerve because she uh, got, <coughs> got an injection where the nurse missed her vein and literally just stabbed her in the median nerve. Oh, my God. <laughs> and which is, and I told her, I was like, that's about one in a million. Like, that's, it's really hard to pin down a nerve. Um, right. nonetheless stab straight through it, right? But she comes in and she goes, well, you know what? My, my, my thumb hasn't worked right since. My grip power's all off. I've been in all this pain, you know? And again, another Cairo in town is who referred her to me because they know that I've just done a lot of training in neurodynamics. And so they kind of look at it and go, I don't know, I'm hands off. Go see Ben, right? Yeah. So I get a lot, I get a lot of that kind of stuff where it's, um, you know, I kind of get a mix of some movement-based problems, some typical, you know, like, oh, I can barely breathe. I have a rib pace problem. And then the, you know, got stabbed in the median nerve or spiral fractured my humerus in jujitsu or whatever. Like, I just, it, it, it's a pretty wide array. Oh, man, that's a, <laughs> the jujitsu, that's some scary stuff. I, I practiced jujitsu for about seven years. I was pretty lucky as far as injuries go with that. You know, every once in a while, popped elbow, but then it got better. But, yeah, yep. if, you don't, if you don't tap out, that gets bad real quick. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's... Uh, I don't even remember when uh, one of the Noguera brothers got his humerus spiral fractured during the oh, UFC yeah. fight a few years ago. I remember yeah. I was watching that one live, and I just kind of went, oh, God. You know? <laughs> yeah. For some reason, a few of the people that were watching didn't quite catch it. And I just yeah. felt like, oh, he, he, like, he either dislocated in a really awkward fashion or he just fractured his arm. And they were right. like, what? And then sure enough, you know, he gets up and come to find out later it's a spiral fracture. Because he's one of the Noguera brothers, he's back fighting like two months later or something, but... Yeah. I was just, it's actually it's, the reason I have not done jujitsu is because in clinical practice I've had I, I try to protect myself a little bit and I've had a ton of injuries anyway but um, there are certain sports I just I won't do while I'm in clinical practice purely because I see that crap all the time right right like I'm just I'm, yeah. I'm not doing motocross I'm not doing jujitsu <laughs> right um, I did uh, I did muay thai for a while and it didn't take long for me to figure out that my hands forearms and shins were constantly aching and so. I tried to get rid of all the ones that were pretty well guaranteed to give you injuries and really right. stuck with the ones that are unlikely but still could happen. 
Right. And so I still do it every once in a while just to stay sharp and, you know, still have that confidence that I can handle myself if the need arises. And But, you know, there was – I remember my last kickboxing session, I got kicked in the knee and couldn't walk for three days. And I was like, well, that's done. I'm going <laughs> to stick with CrossFit. It's a lot better for you. So, you know, it's yep. – uh, it's, uh, so what, now what I'm interested in is kind of how your your practice has evolved because you said uh, you started out a certain way and then you started going towards more towards like the pain science type of thing and the, the neurodynamic stuff. And I feel like that's really interesting because a lot of people are going in that direction and, you know, the main reason being is the nervous system is king, right? So that's what we're learning in, yep. you know, like these rock blades courses is you're not affecting the muscles as much as you're affecting the nervous system that controls those muscles. And it's not even the muscles now. It's the the fascia that's surrounding the muscles that's, you know, essentially protecting the muscles from further injury or, you know, whatever the case may be. So uh, what kind of started getting you down that rabbit hole? Was, was it you just kind of working with rock tape and all the, the research that they're doing on that, or did you kind of start doing it on your own? How'd that evolve? Uh, yeah, well, it, it, it's a mix of things. So, I mean, I owe I owe a great debt to Steve Capobianco um, because when I was in school, he had graduated not far in front of me, but um, when I was in school, he had uh, graduated and he was still working with a lot of the students, and uh, he became very much one of my mentors and people that I ran into often. And so when I was in school was when rock tape started. And so I ended up as a student going out to the velodrome and putting tape on people and ended up going out to events and ended up trying to get rock tape involved with our sports council really early on. And so Steve, uh, who's an extremely intelligent and amazing human being, um, kind of, you know, helped me along the way. And he'd always pick up the phone when I called. And he'd always give me, give me honest answers, even though usually they were way too nice. And so I got involved in rock tape and got to essentially learn whatever Steve was learning and would kind of go and try to figure out what he was learning and why he thought it was valuable, and that was really meaningful to me. Um, but the the other rather large part of my life in the last few years um, has actually been the continuing education world. Um, so, I mean, I, I did teach for rock tape, and I did that, you know, in varying degrees over the years. Um, but in my first year out of school, I took over 200 hours of continuing ed. Uh, yeah. And a lot of that was because, and I graduated from school having already done every FMF and SFMA course, done all this work through the NASM, I was a CSCS, I did pretty well everything I possibly could to kind of fill this gap between my previous world, the training world, and the clinical world. Um, but I graduated going, oh crap, there's still so much I don't know, I just passed board exams, now I need to figure out what people actually do in the real world. And so I started going out to a ton of continuing ed, um, and that's where I started to get exposed to a lot of it. And as a result of going out to a ton of this continuing ed, uh, I met one of my best friends and my business partner. His name is Michael Maxwell, who runs a company called Somatic Senses Education. And so we're a continuing education company up here in Canada and in the Pacific Northwest um, that we put on seminars. And so essentially what Mike and I get to do is kind of, you know, cherry pick whoever we want to in the continuing ed world, bring them into Toronto, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, Victoria, Seattle, Portland, whatever it might be, um, and to put on seminars and learn from them. So for the last four or five years, I was probably at, in, I don't know, anywhere between 15 and 20 continuing ed seminars a year with someone that I had never learned from before or someone that, you know, would I, someone like Steve would say, hey, 
have you heard of this guy? What do you think of him? And I'd be able to be like, no, I haven't heard of him, but then look him up, <laughs> call them up, say, hey, do you feel like coming to teach in Canada? Um, and then run an entire business based on that. So that was a, a huge proponent for me, um, just moving everything forward, right? Because right. you get to see what the PhDs are thinking. You get to see what the people who are in the trenches are thinking. Um, and you get exposed to a wide variety of it. So it's helped to keep, uh, keep my mind a little more open and a little more diverse. Um, and I say that just because in clinical practice, it's really easy to do the same things over and over again, even if they're good things. You know, right. you, like I, I think everyone should take the SFMA, for instance. Even if it's not what you do every day, I think everyone should kind of understand the base model of movement screening. And that's probably right. one of the best ways to do it. And so I do that every single day in practice, but I also know people who all they do is SFMA, dry needling, active release technique, and adjusting. And it's like they literally don't have any other tools in their toolbox. And so the continuing ed world has definitely made it so that I get exposed to a lot of things repeatedly. And my, as a result, my client base is constantly changing, and what I do in the clinic is constantly changing. I don't even remember your question now. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's fine. It's that, so that leads me to the point where I've taken, uh, three of the Rock Tape courses so far and then hosted one. So basically I've taken it, the same course, uh, twice. And, you know, then I'm watching a video from Perry Nicholson who's talking about taping the system. And I'm like, yep. oh, you know what I mean? So I've taken this Rock Tape courses six times and then this guy says it at the right time to where I'm just like, oh, take the system, got it. But then I go backwards, yep. and I'm like, yeah, these people have been telling me this for years, <laughs> but it just yep. now needed to click, I guess. So, um, Oh, that's definitely you know, how it works. Yeah, and I'm going on a, you know, I've been uh, graduated from massage school about three and a half years ago, and I've been going on just an education rampage to the point where my wife is like, bro, cap it back. <laughs> like, we need to, we need to, hey, Spend time together. B. Spend time with our dog. And C. Not spend not go broke. all of the money. Right. Yeah. And so you know, but it's yep. so hard because the more you learn, the more you're exposed to, and the more you're exposed to, the more people you find, and the more people you find, the more courses you find, and it's just it's like this never-ending, you know, kind of rabbit hole of just incredible people that just are constantly pushing the envelope of what we know. And so, yep. you know, the, the, uh, a huge part, um, for me is like taking a course and then kind of stepping back and how do I integrate it into my current practice? And, yep. and then, so what that, you know, kind of based on what you were just saying is it builds variance so that you don't get bored in your job because I feel like being bored equals burnout. And so, yeah. You know, oh yeah. The 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 atypical, or I shouldn't say atypical. I'm sorry. So the typical massage therapist, you know, just comes in, does like the Swedish massage or the the sports massage or the deep tissue stuff, and they just do that every day, eight hours a day, and I just can't handle that because. Yeah. And so you know, I use a lot of uh, neurokinetic therapy, which is um, really fun for me because then I'm I'm muscle testing and finding out all these neurological dysfunctions and it's different for every person and it's different each time those people come in and then I can be like well you don't need manual therapy today you need to practice rolling patterns on the ground or we need to 
focus on stabilizing your core better. We need to get you back into a crawling pattern, or we need to do more functional range conditioning today, or we need to do, you know, so there's all these yep. different tools that you have, and the more tools that you have, the more interesting your job is, and every once in a while, you hit a roadblock, and you're like, okay, so what tool haven't I used on this person? And then you can go back and maybe use something you haven't used in a while. Yep. And, and you know what's really funny is in the, in the continuing ed world, you you actually see repeated patterns if you if you stick around long enough. And right. you re, and, and when I when I say stick around long enough, I mean when when essentially when you kind of you're surrounded by it repeatedly, which I am. I mean, probably seventy five percent of my emails on any given day are from you know people that we're working with as presenters, you know, and that right. that's amazing. Um, but you actually you, you do see repeated patterns over and over again. And the funny thing is, you probably find a lot of these presenters did what you and I are doing very early on in their career, and they're getting their hands on everything and trying to be on the forefront, trying to get the latest and greatest technique. And then later in their career, they actually dial back quite a bit. And a lot of that is because the the pace at which the actual legitimate basic science is progressing is actually not very fast. But the pace at which we are coming up with new applications for said science is quite fast. And right. so over time, what you'll find is that pretty well every year, you know, it's like everyone and their dog comes out with a new seminar, but a lot of the time you can kind of look at it and go, well, this is just a repackaging of some stuff that's been out before. And sometimes right. that's insanely valuable because of how it's been repackaged or because of how the thought process around it has uh, happened or because of the mastery of the material. So uh, like as, as an example, I went to see Eric Cressy speak in Seattle uh, five years ago, maybe six years ago. I don't remember when it was. Um, but I went to go see Eric Cressy speak, not a seminar that we were hosting, just one that I, you know, paid as a regular registrant to go to. And the entire weekend, he actually didn't, re- he didn't say anything I didn't already know. And by that, I mean, there was no tests, literally only one exercise the entire weekend that I hadn't tried or given to a patient before. And it was on shoulders. And shoulder was very much my jam at the time. But I was insanely impressed because he had a clinical, even though he's not a clinician, the crazy part, he had a clinical mastery of it. He had, a, he had taken the material and repackaged it in such a logical way that you look at it and you kind of go, it would be really dumb to do it any other way. Like, he's doing right. it right. Because he had taken all these different tools and packaged them in a way that anyone that was standing in front of him, he could create the perfect soup to feed them that would help their ailments and be able to predict what would happen with it over time. So he wasn't right. doing anything fancy. He wasn't doing any tricks. He wasn't doing any kind of party show. It was just, here's the basics and here's how I do it. And I remember walking out of there with kind of a new aha moment, which was not like a, ooh, aha, I have to scrape the bottom of the foot, or ooh, aha, I have to make someone move their tongue when they're doing this, or ooh, aha, I have to adjust this for that. It was an aha of like, no, 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 there's, there's another level to this where you're not just accumulating tools in your toolbox, you're not just accumulating knowledge. You kind of get the, the, the view of the full package after a while, and then right. you refine it to the point where this mastery happens. And there's a lot of people that we bring in with our business, and a lot of people... Actually, probably a lot of people that are teaching for update, to be honest, that they, in clinic, they would have an insane amount of knowledge that they just all distill down very, very quickly to whoever's sitting in front of them. Uh, and right. that's actually something that I think is insanely valuable, and those are the people I go to try to learn from now. There are certain right. techniques that are kind of standalone techniques that no one else is really talking about outside of that. So, like, if you look at DNS, for instance, you might get things that sound like DNS in a lot of other places, but looking at the musculoskeletal system through a developmental model, they were really the first to make that popular, really the first to systematize it in a way that the average clinician can use it, and they're still doing it the best. 
right? right. But give it, give it 15 years, there will be a ton, a ton of people teaching developmental model stuff and not even saying the word, you know, the phrase DNS or not even mentioning Pavel or what, whatnot, right? right? And so it's, it's really interesting to me being in the continuing ed world now and kind of seeing a lot of this stuff come full circle where having only been doing it for five or ten years, there's, there's, I guess, seminars and newly popularized people that are kind of coming to the scene where you look at them and you go, oh, yeah, so that's this guy's stuff from seven years ago, just a little new twist. Right. Right. Um, right. And, and sometimes that's valuable. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> right. And so, you know, like the, the DNS is one thing. Then you have the postural restoration to institute that's kind of same concepts, but kind of different. And then you have like even Perry Nichols' primal movement change, which he, you know, takes a lot of his information, but it's all just kind of bringing people back down to the floor, focusing on core stability and breathing mechanics and, and, you know, the whole, the whole kind of spectrum of that, but then hearing it in different ways is really important. So I always bring oh, I up, so I always bring up like when I was a boxing coach, like you had to think of thirty different ways to explain the jab to ten different people because everybody understands something differently. So yep. it's it's more of an accumulation of knowledge of how to explain different the same thing differently to people to make them understand it. So, you know, yep. kind of like I just said previously where, you know, I've been hearing tape the system multiple times from multiple people, but then, you know, one person says it the way that I needed to hear it. And I'm like, Oh, got it. You know, so yep. um, it's, it's a, it, that's kind of why I'm taking as much as I can right now while I can afford it. Because, you know, I'm just like, there's so much knowledge out there and you can't have a dogmatic view of that knowledge because it's all important. And if you state, like, because there's all the people that are like, you know, DNS versus TRI is the biggest one where they're just like, no, this is the only thing that works. And no, this is the only thing that works. But it's all worked. You just need to figure out who needs it more. And so uh, I think, um, man, I just kind of, lost track of what my point is but uh (laughs) yeah just trying to just the application of everything and um it's just the the and then i think the other important part is um realizing that it's not different things it's all part of the same system so like that's a i think another thing that um is a big fault for people especially coming out of like the the massage therapy world like they're all just like this is the nervous system and then these are the muscles and then this is the fascia and you treat everything differently and that's just not the way that it works and And, uh, you you treat a person right you don't treat you don't treat the fascia you treat a person who has some fascia and some muscles and some joints and some bones and nervous system and all this stuff and you know the, the funny thing is it's it's probably just a matter of time until you know kind of the the unspoken systems become really popular because, I mean, chiropractors have been talking about kind of, quote-unquote, the nervous system, granted in a very mechanical and kind of outdated fashion for a very long time, um, but they've been talking about it, and really in the last, like, 15 years is when everyone is talking about stabilization strategies and the nervous system being the king or the gatekeeper or whatever it's going to be, um, right. so much so that, you know, I kind of look back at how I practice a little more mechanically, and I kind of roll my eyes at myself a little bit, like a lot of people do, and kind of go, yeah, well, it, it worked, it's fine. Um, but there's still like, 
the funny thing is no one's talking that much about blood flow until right now, right? right. And then BFR right. is becoming this big thing where it's kind of, you see people kind of going like, really, we're going to like stop blood flow or alter blood flow and that's supposed to get people better. But again, the research is pretty clear on blood flow restriction. Um, that it works in some really massive and really obvious ways, and I've seen it clinically, and I've seen it on myself in the gym. And so it's just funny because BFR has been studied for about 60 years now, um, but it's going to go through this phase, you know, probably in the next 10 years, whereby everyone's talking about blood. It's just like, oh, no, the blood is going to be the next big thing, kind of like the nervous system was, kind of like, you know, the subluxation was for a chiropractor at one point, kind of like fascia was for pretty well everybody, I don't know, 10 years ago or whatever it was. Right. So it's, it, everything kind of goes through the cycle, but, I mean, really, clinical mastery in some way, shape, or form is what we should all be searching for um, and leave the real, real, real hyper-focused, narrow expertise to the people that are actually capable of that. Because right. I honestly, like, if you watch, like, I mean, if you watch David Weinstock do NKT, that is completely yeah. different than watching me do it. It's not the right. same thing. He, right. he, will, he will fix significantly more problems using NKT than I will, regardless of the problem because he's right. a master of it. If you right. watch uh, Pavel Kolaj do uh, anything that he would kind of deem DNS, everything he does we kind of call DNS in some way, shape, or form, but he is going to fix so many more problems than I will using DNS. Right. But I think a lot of the time, you know, we kind of fool ourselves into thinking like, oh, I'm an NKT practitioner, or, oh, I'm an ART practitioner. And it's like, well, you're not David Weinstock, and you're not Michael Leahy, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think those, those few people that are really freaking good and phenomenal at it and have this, you know, just this other level of sense of feel and touch and knowing what they're doing and this depth of knowledge and experience, like, let them be an ART practitioner or an NKT practitioner or whatever it is. Like, they are going to be phenomenal at it. But, you know, us mere mortals, or at least me, I don't know about you, but (laughs) me being a mere mortal, I kind of need to go learn the big rocks from all these people and fill my cup with those big rocks. Um, right. And a lot of that's just purely because if I try to impersonate, you know, Michael Leahy, I'm going to fail. I might right. be, you know, locally kind of good, but I'm not going to ever achieve that level of mastery that I want to achieve. Right. And so, and it's uh, partly because we primarily have a different focus than they do. Like, they're so focused on perfecting their craft, and then our craft is completely different than theirs. So we're that's how I feel like a lot of these education courses are – coming to prominence is because somebody took all these different ideas from all these different practitioners and then created their own craft and then became an expert at that and then decided to teach it to people and then other people found it valuable and that's just kind of where it's coming from so i think that's one of the amazing things about all these different education courses if you if you are focused and determined you can take huge leaps and bounds in your knowledge base because, you yep. know, like David Weinstock's been practicing for 40 years. I've yep. only been practicing for three, but I take a couple weekend courses from that guy and get a lot of his knowledge that he's com- accumulated over the years and then apply it to my own personal thing and make it my own personal thing. And I think that yep. that's really phenomenal. So then you're looking at somebody that's, up the cliff and you're looking at David Weinstock climbing being like, how did he get that far? It doesn't make any sense. But then you're, <laughs> yep. you, you know, you're, you're jumping up that cliff by just taking his courses. And I think that that's uh, just an incredible opportunity that a lot of people are either capitalizing on or, you know, it's really 
I think it's just incredible. We just live in this age of information where you can just even learn so much just, you know, look at following the right people on Instagram. It's just the, yeah. the, the age of information. And then I want to go back to uh, Eric Cressy a little bit. Um, yep. Because that's really interesting to me because he's, uh, he's primarily baseball guys, correct? Yes. Yeah, so then you got to think, like, so I took a functional range conditioning course from Andrea Spina, Dr. Andrea yep. Spina, and he was talking about, you know, like human beings were made to like throw rock at a squirrel and then hit the rock or hit the squirrel and then be like, cool, I have dinner now. They're not made yep. to throw that rock at that squirrel 5,000 times in a season. So yep. like if you're looking at somebody like Eric Cressy and you want to, you want to learn more about the shoulder, like he's the perfect person because that's all he looks at is yep. the shoulder. And so, you know, then, uh, a lot of the uh, rabbit holes that I've gone down were uh, from another uh, strength and conditioning coach. His name is uh, Michael Ban, who uh, is uh, one of the head coaches for OPEX. And yep. he was just like, take this course and read this book by David Butler because this is really important. And then you also need to focus on the gut. So read this and then yep. read this. So I think that there's kind of a rise to prominence of, um, all these strength and conditioning coaches who are now gaining a whole lot of respect, like the Eric Cressy's, the, uh, um, you know, Michael Band, Brett Bartholomew has become a new one, and I think that that's really amazing. So I'm kind of hoping that there's going to be um, massage therapists that are kind of respected in the same way, you know, because oh, yeah. I was, um, and, we, were, and there we were, there are, and, um, you know, David Weinstock being one of them. Um, yeah. But I feel like, you know, my profession is kind of at a loss because a lot of people have this idea of a massage therapist because I was watching Friends and then Phoebe is this massage therapist <laughs> on Friends and now everybody just... She's the prototypical massage therapist. Oh, my God. And so that's kind of what I feel like <laughs> I'm going up against. You know what I mean? So it's kind of a, it's a, kind of a long road to hope, but... You, um, you know, I've got a, I've got a, a very specific thought on that. I'd love to share with you. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so, and this is, you know, I'm sure there are going to be people that listen to this that don't appreciate it. But, I mean, halfway through chiropractic college, I freaking hated chiropractors. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of it was because there was, I was just bombarded with so many people who were just like, I'm not going to say doing outdated stuff, but doing stuff that we've been doing for, you know, literally a hundred years, and and proud of it. And I'm going like, oh, my God, like, I don't want to just crack necks for a living. I just, oh, man. And then to make matters worse is I would have, I would run into people in, in public, you know, outside of school and tell them that I'm a chiropractor. And they kind of, you know, take one step backwards and be like, oh, that's nice. Oh, I got to go. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, great. This is going to be fun. Right? Right. And so I, I, I grew this little bit of angst about it um, to the point where when I first graduated, I actually had... Uh, you know, I'll, I'll admit I had ego problems whereby I didn't want to just overtly and outright come out and tell people, hey, I'm a chiropractor. And a lot right. of that was because I was not taking ownership over my profession. What I was doing was wanting people to like me. And those are two yeah. very, very different things. And so I had this epiphany at one point whereby I'm going like, man, like, I hate how our, our profession is perceived. Like, there's just so much crap. Because when I moved to Kelowna, like, People here had a very, very poor view of a lot of chiropractors, like a lot right. of people did. 
Um, and it was so frustrating to me. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, like, this pisses me off so much. Like, so many of the people I went to school with are so phenomenal. And all these people see are, the, like, the, the complete kooks, you know, the, the guys doing, like, the three times a week for six months and just ripping people off. And the guy that did the same adjustment every single time and claiming it's going to cure cancer and, like, just freaking killing me. To the point where I kind of, you know, did a little bit of a hermit crab thing and retreated into my shell. And only when really prodded would I tell people, hey, I'm a chiropractor. Yeah. You know, I'd introduce myself in pretty well any other way. Like, hey, what do you do for a living? And I'd be like, oh, I fix shoulders. You know, and because I was right. like 90% of my client base is fixing shoulder problems at one point. And right. uh, so I'd get really embarrassed about it. And the epiphany that I had was just like, yeah, this is my fault. Like, this is totally my fault because myself... And all my friends and all the people that I know who feel just like this, we all hide. We all sit right. behind social media and bitch and complain about the other people in the profession not doing us justice when the people that I feel like aren't doing us justice are the ones that are out there in public proclaiming the news of chiropractic care, proclaiming the news of this profession and doing all these things. And I'm going, gosh, man, like, it's at a point now where in this town there's, there's probably just as many chiropractors doing really good work as there are complete kooks. But right. the ones that are doing really good work just have their head down, have their nose in the book. They choose not to tell people a lot of the time. And it's actually doing the profession a huge disservice. So right. my, my request of you is, like, fly the massage therapist flag. Because you have yeah. the capacity to, with every single person you interact with, change the perception of your profession. To the point yeah. where you get enough people that do that, 20 years from now, the, the Phoebe's, <laughs> even though I love Phoebe's, <laughs> probably... She's probably my favorite character on Friends. Um, yes, but sure. 20 years from now, the Phoebes will be like, oh, man, I ran into this weird massage therapist, right? Yeah. Where, you know, working primarily with crystals and chakras is going to be something that is kind of like, oh, well, yeah, I ran into one of those, <laughs> right? Right. And not that right. there's anything wrong with those, but, I mean, if you, if you want to hold your profession to a standard, you've got to be the person on the forefront waving the flag. And so I, yeah. I, I very much did a 180-degree turn. And I make a point of no matter who that I meet, even if I know that they just despise chiropractors or had a bad experience, it's just like, hey, I'm Dr. Ben. I'm a chiropractor. I don't even wait for them to ask. You know, right. it's not like, because if you say Dr. Ben, they're going to be like, oh, what kind of doctor? What do you do? Right? It's like Dr. Ben, chiropractor. Right? Right. And yeah. then usually they're leading in with questions anyway. And so yeah. I've started taking so much more of an aggressive approach to that because in this town, I've got the capacity to change a lot of minds. And I think right. we all need to do that with our professions that we feel a little iffy about. Right. I like it. Um, you know, and the, 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 I feel like there's potential in the massage therapy space to do a lot of good. I just think that there's a lot of old school kind of views on things that need to change quite a bit. Like the, you know, like what the, all the research that, uh, Bianco has been doing with the nervous system and how deep pressure is actually not that great. So, you know, I ran across a massage therapist a couple of days ago who had their client come out. She just worked on the quad on his left leg and, you know, he, she was like, okay, do a squat and tell me how it feels. Well, the left quad feels stiffer than it did before. And she's like, well, I went really, really, really deep. So what you're going to need to do is you're just going to need to ice it for the next couple of days. And then so I'm thinking <laughs> in my head, oh, my God. So what you're saying is I injured you, and now you need to treat the injury is basically what I heard. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, this is, all, this is all stuff that, you know, we 
you know, like we and when I say we, me and the the fellow massage therapists that I work with, we need to start changing the minds of the people that, you know, there's there's more to this and that you can actually expand your knowledge past that remedial massage education. And you don't yeah. have to, you know, go to uh, – if you want continued education, you don't have to go to a Qigong class, and Qigong works for people. I'm not saying that it doesn't. But you can yep. go to a DNS class, and you can go to um, a PRI class, and you can go to, you know, all these other classes that the standard massage boards don't recognize as continued education for massage therapists because there is plenty of education that counts that is very valuable, such as the rock tape education, right? And yep. it's and so, you know, right now I they like in Arizona I have to get 25 hours every two years, and yep. I just have hundreds of hours because I'm just so obsessed with learning as much as I can, and you know just connecting with these phenomenal people, which is another reason why I have yep. this podcast is so I can be like, hey, that guy knows more than me. I want to ask him questions. I'm going to ask him if he wants to talk to me about stuff. And, you know, a majority <laughs> of the people that I ask want to talk to me about stuff. And so it's really great. Well, you'd find the majority of people that are involved in the continuing ed world, half of the reason they like the continuing ed world is because they get to be surrounded by other smart people. Um, and that's, right. you know, a lot of people would not necessarily overtly say that because they don't want to sound egotistical. But, right. I mean, I guarantee you've done it in your head, even if not overtly. You kind of know that you're a special breed in your in your profession. You kind of yeah. know that there's a lot of people who are okay to meet the minimum requirements, that there's a lot of people that are okay just rubbing people. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but right. you know that you're not okay with that, and you know that there's other people out there that are also not okay with it, and you want to seek them out, right? right. And there's a lot, a lot of people in the continuing ed world that that's the category they fall into. And right. half of the fun of the continuing education game is the the breakfasts and dinners before and after the course with these people. Um, right. And half of the fun of the continuing ed game happens on the breaks and on the lunches. You do the, the, the knowledge learning, so to speak, during the course, and then you do the kind of life learning and the application learning and the, the, the not the real learning, but it's a different kind of learning otherwise. Um, and it feels good to be surrounded by people whose minds are moving forward and who, by surrounded with people whose minds just want to know. They're curious. Right. They're moving forward. They want to challenge themselves. They want to be on the forefront. Um, right. And if you're if you're one of those, if you're of that breed, it's really hard not to go surround yourself with those people. So, right. like, I feel, and I'm sure you feel the same, like, I went to uh, an annual general meeting for, you know, all the chiropractors in this province last year, and I felt so awkward. I just felt yeah. weird. I felt out of place. And there's, like, you know, 10 or 20 colleagues there that, you know, I, I know them, I see them, I love them, they're amazing. Um, but there's so many others that I just feel like I don't even have a conversation to have with you because I feel like we're we're not even the same same creature. Like we have the same title, but like you're right. doing neuro emotion you're doing neuro emotional technique, <laughs> right. and you're doing it in this spa, and I'm going to watch surgeries with the back surgeon, and it's right. just like they're they're two ends of the spectrum. You think the medical profession, you know, is out to kill everybody. And my sister's a medical doctor, and I love her to death, and I think that we would all be dead were it not for these things. Right. And so there's just, you, over after time, you kind of find your niche and find your people, uh, and a lot of the time, the continuing ed world is kind of filled with the type of people that 
are going to be forward-thinking and are going to want to do more, they'd rather go expose themselves to stuff they're uncomfortable with repeatedly than not expose themselves to anything new at all. And that's right. something that I've kind of come to grips with, that I'm okay being uncomfortable around kind of, you know, the average chiropractor, the average massage therapist, the average physio, the average whatever. Um, and th- there's nothing wrong with that because they have right. their people that they relate with. I, I have my people that I relate with, and I just there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And I uh, just the fact that they signed up for the same course as you means that you guys are on the same path and you're like-minded people. And so yeah. that's – and, you know, when uh, my friend Michael Ban was like, hey, you need to check out this DNS stuff, I was like, well, yeah. what's DNS? So I started researching it. So I knew <laughs> – you and know, DNS sounds hilarious when you research it, but you haven't taken the course yet. You're just like, really? Right. That's what we're going to do. Right. But then, you know, you start researching it and you figure out the basics behind it and you figure out, you know, you start following or finding people like Craig Levinson who talk about it and yep. you start kind of getting a basic understanding of everything so that when you go in there, you kind of know what you're getting into. And so yep. they're, 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 they're explaining it obviously in more detail. And you're getting a lot of information, but you kind of already know what's going on. So where you really, where I really learn is at the lunch breaks or, you know, in between the the breaks with all these um, chiropractors and PTs and massage therapists and whoever who are just like, oh, so this is the technique that they just showed us, but this is how I use it in my clinic and this is what's going on here and this is what's going on there and this is what I figured out combining it with this and you're just like oh that's amazing i can't wait to use that on somebody or you know what i mean and then uh kind of going back to where everything has a has its place you know i uh interviewed uh david weinstock um a couple months ago and was on my high horse being like i don't understand how nobody does this and all this massage therapy basic stuff is bullcrap and he interrupted me and said hey everything has its place and i'm like you know what you're right because you know there's and i bring up like i have a lot of my clients who are first responders and they are under chronic stress all the time so they don't need a lot of this stuff when they come and see me they need just to down regulate their nervous system and calm down and get back into a parasympathetic state and, 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 so the, and the funny thing is that's that's the most valuable thing you could give them. <laughs> right, right. You know, and that, that's what you want to give people. You, you don't want to give people the right answer. You want to give them the most valuable thing you can give them. Uh, right. And if you're an, an uh, you know, quote-unquote FRC, you know, FRCMS, and that's, you know, one of the things that you post on Instagram about, and it, you know, great, good for you. That will probably fix a ton of the stuff you're going to deal with. But if you have a first responder that comes in that orthopedically they're, you know, a little bit messed up, but nervous system wise, they are just like they're running out of cortisol because they're just ramped the entire day. Like, right. who free, who freaking cares, man? Like, talk them down off the ledge a little bit, play some relaxing music, freaking rub them for all I care. Like, give right. them the value that they need. It's not about your technique; it's about the client. Right. And you know, I brought this up multiple times too. Sometimes people just need a safe place without judgment, and. There's times where people come in and I fix whatever problem it is, and then we end up just talking about their life for an hour. You know, like they can come in and talk to me, well, my husband or my wife or my girlfriend or my workmate does this, and I hate it, and I can have that conversation with them, and they know that this is a safe place for them, and I'm not going to judge them based on their decisions or, 
you know, whatever their problem seemed to be. And that's actually what they needed was just to offload all this garbage that they've been holding on to. And so, you know, that's another thing too. And that's all. So it's, and that brings me back to my original point where it's all the same thing. And so you need to, like you were just saying, you need to treat the person, not the symptom. And so sometimes the symptom is they just are like, well, I have this neck pain right here, but you know, I only feel it when I talk to my mom on the phone. And so my mom does this and my mom does that and my mom does this and they just need to offload about their mom and then, you know, while you're working on it and then they're like, oh, my neck feels better. And you're like, well, that's probably good. Come, you know, next time you talk to your mom. I would absolutely love it. Uh, If someone actually came in and said those words, by the way, my neck only hurts when I talk to my mom on the phone, I would love it, by the way. I would just (laughs) say it ear to ear and I would just be like, this is going to be a fun one. This is going to be (laughs) great. So I had uh, one client specifically who um, I remember – you know, she came in because she was having hip pain and nerve pain going down her leg. I did all the typical things for, you know, like sciatic pain and, and making sure everything was in alignment and all the, the fascial tissue was down, regulated, all that different stuff. And she started to feel better, but her leg pain is still there. So then I was like, well, maybe it's a stability issue. So then, you know, we started doing a lot of strength and conditioning stuff. And over the course of a couple of months, she was feeling a lot better, felt a lot stronger was, you know, getting more confidence in herself. And then one day it just came back and it was ferocious. And I was like, well, damn it, we were making so much progress. What happened? So I started asking her questions. You know, did you sleep weird? Did you, did, are you eating foods that are inflammatory? Is like, what's going on? And then she was like, oh man, I talked to my mom the other day and she made me so mad. And then that night my hip just started hurting. And I was like, ah, that's it. You know, like, you have this, so, and that goes back to a book that I read by uh, Dr. John Sarno, where he says that, you know, you have these subconscious emotions that are so difficult to deal with that your body will create pain as a distraction by, you know, Mm -hmm. sucking, you know, oxygen and blood flow away from that area, and it's just easier to be like, ah, this hurts. Instead of being like, okay, let's unpack this emotional garbage that I have to, you know, make that feel better. And so, you know, once she just yelled at me about her mom for about an hour, she's like, oh, my hip feels better. And I'm like, great. (laughs) You know, so it doesn't happen often, but sometimes I get, I get those, but you know, it's a, we're, we're, humans are interesting creatures and they all have different stuff going on. So. Yeah. You know, one of the things I did, um, because I was fully booked so early on in my career, um, I made the mistake of thinking that it was because I was really good and because I was phenomenal at my job. um, And a lot of it was because, you know, I had heard a a, a very well-known presenter say, here's your business plan. You know, be the best damn Cairo physio within a 10-mile radius and you're set kind of thing. And, And I believed them. And the funny thing is, I very much 100% do not believe that anymore. Uh, I think that the thing that is going to give you the largest amount of success, um, you know, depending on how you define success, but the the largest amount of comfort and the most uh, continual ongoing referrals and the most comfort in your clinical practice is going to be being intentional and very overtly good at gaining people's trust and keeping it and delivering on your promises, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's something that um, 
like I said, I kind of fooled myself into thinking that a lot of my success was because I was good or because I was intelligent or I was good with my hands or blah, blah, blah. All these excuses that you make of, you know, why, you know, most of my classmates were struggling in practice and I wasn't. Um, but, I mean, that was all just ego talking. And really the big thing that was making me very much successful was the fact that I could talk to people in a very specific way um, and essentially not make friends with my clients, but I would gain their trust that pretty well no matter what was going to happen, I'd have their best interest in mind. I was going to do everything that I could possibly do to get them better, right? And right. so when I started hiring other people, about uh, other chiros and associates about two years out of school, the main thing that most people, you know, come asking when you interview is like, oh, well, what techniques do you use? What, uh, you know, do you do soft tissue work, you know, as a general question? Or, you know, do you do exercise? Do you do all this? And part of me is just like, who cares? Like, <laughs> wrong question. Don't ask me no questions. Like, you know, like, I would rather you be as someone that, and this sounds really strange considering everything we just talked about, but I would rather hire someone who is insanely good with people but is going to do the minimum requirements in continuing ed every day of the week over hiring right. someone who is socially awkward, extremely standoffish, hates to be wrong, always late, blames things on other people, even if they take 200 education hours a year, right? right. Every day of the week, I'll take the person who's good with people. Um, and right. a lot of that is because, like I said, we treat people, you know? Like, it, the, the complexity of the human system is so insane that if we're – fooling ourselves into thinking it's because that we're, we have magic hands or we know techniques that other people don't know, I would venture to say we're probably off, right? right. I think that's a huge, huge, huge value in learning and overtly, intentionally addressing how we deal with people. And so when I started hiring people two years in and they started asking that question, um, and everyone does as a new grad because they, you know, like they want to know if I do active release or if I do FR or if I do NKT or if I do yada, 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 yada. Um, you know, that that tells me that it's good that they want to learn, but what I really want to see is what happens when someone walks in the door, right? What actually, yeah. what do they do to make that person feel comfortable in the room? What do they do to make that person feel like that the therapist has their best interest in mind and they're going to do everything in their power to, to make it better? And I actually started teaching uh, my associates on a regular, uh, regular basis essentially kind of the, the mechanisms by which you could start building that trust within 30 seconds of someone walking in the door. And right. a lot of it was just things that I had picked up through the pain science community or things that I had picked up through watching um, a lot of who I considered the best in the world do their work. Um, and a lot of it was just little things that I picked up um, that I went, God, that's one of the reasons people love this person so much. Like they ask the perfect questions at the perfect time or they interrupt less or they touch in a specific way, or they walk across the room in a specific way, or their postures are this certain way. And the funny thing is, you can have someone that has an orthopedic problem come into you, like you had talked about, and their nervous system be completely ramped up because they, you know, got in a fight with their mom, or because, you know, their grandma died, or something of that sort. And you can actually not even talk about it overtly, and not say, oh, well, you know, tell me about your mom. But the way that you interact with people, the means by which you interact with people, can actually essentially bring that, that vibration down a little bit. It can make them calmer. You can see it, it's like their face melts. It's so weird. It's just yeah. like they go from holding insane amounts of tension and bringing the whole thing down. And you can do all that while talking about their hip. And you can do all that while talking about their shoulder. It just needs to be uh, – it's not just about what you do. It's about how you do it, right? And that's right. something that, like, now, any time I want to go, you know, hire someone or work with someone in any capacity, whether it's in business or as a clinician – that's one of the main things I'm judging 
is, you know, how this person communicates, what working with this person is going to be like, not whether or not they are a content expert, not whether or not they have the technique that I'm looking for. Those are kind of the base prerequisites. Um, but nowadays, you can find a million people who do FRC. You can find a million people who do active release technique. You can find a million people who do NKT. That's like, I'll find my basics, but I really care significantly less about those than I do about what they do until the walks in the room. Right. And so, you know, like a, uh, what I've found is that a big part of that is just being genuinely happy to see somebody. That's, yeah. You know, and that's like, that's a lot, that's a big thing that a lot of people are missing, I think. And so, you know, even just at the grocery store, if you practice it at the grocery store, when you get up to the cash register and that person's like, hi, how are you? Say it back to them with the intent of actually wanting to hear how they are. And yep. that'll make a huge difference in their day. Because that's strangely, strangely novel, isn't it? <laughs> like it's so, it's so weird how that is something that you even need to say, but it's true. Right. And it's, it's, because, uh, I don't know, there's like this evolution of people where, you know, back in the 60s, and, be, you know, this is obviously before I was born, so it's like what I've heard, is that everybody knew everybody in the neighborhood. And yep. now nobody knows their neighbors. Nobody talks to anybody. You know, we just kind of walk around just as if we're separate entities from all these different people, and we don't have these little tribes anymore. And so, you know, just having that connection with people, I think, is incredibly important. And the way that you connect with people is important also. So that's basically a different way of saying what you just said is if you you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't connect with people, then none of that matters because you don't really care about their results, and they can tell that. So your intention is incredibly important. Well, you know, the funny thing is I think a lot of us look at ourselves like, as wanting to be, you know, as precise as a surgeon would be. And I think, I think it's just a huge misnomer because I think a lot of people kind of, they want that level of specialty and expertise that a surgeon would have or a neuroscientist would have or a PhD would have. Um, but, you, I mean, we kind of, if we're being honest with ourselves, you got to remember those people are rare creatures. Like there's, right. you know, ten times, a hundred times, a thousand more times you know, exponents more massage therapists in the world than surgeons. Right. Same right. with chiropractors. Same with right. physical therapists. Right? right. And so they can afford to have really poor bedside manner because they are the expert. Right. Right. And even even your even in the the small town of Kelowna, British Columbia, or the small town of Flagstaff, or wherever it's going to be, even the surgeons in that town, they're a rare breed. They, you know, right. in a town of a hundred thousand people, they might be one of less than a hundred, uh, less than a hundred surgeons of any kind. Right. Right. And the chances are they're they're literally it's either just them or they are one of two or three surgeons of their specialty. So they can literally just do whatever they want. They can be an entire jackass, but people are going to seek them out for their specialty. Uh, right. And sometimes people do that with us as well. But I think we kind of fool ourselves if we think that we're the extreme specialists. Some of us are, but most of us it has to do with gaining trust. It has to do with who we know. It has to do with how we interact with the world around us, just like it would be in any profession. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen it over and over again, too. I mean, a lot of the, the therapists and the trainers that work with professional sports teams or work with uh, at universities or work with whatever, very, very little of it is based on a resume. It almost all has to do with how well you work in a team and who you know and whether or not you were in the right place at the right time. Like, it, that's just how it works a lot of the time. And so I think, you know, like, I'm addicted to the continuing ed game, and a lot of that's because I got into this profession because I love this stuff. I just... 
Right. I, I just I eat it up, you know. On my spare time, I'm reading about it, thinking about it, watching, listening to podcasts, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the average client, they don't care. Yeah, <laughs> they just want to have someone that they can trust to go to when they have a problem. Right, right. And you know, like I said, we're 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 on the same boat there because it's getting to the point where my wife's like, you you can't do this two or three times in a month. You just can't do this. And I'm like, oh, but I have to. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I can't not. <laughs> right. Um, so let's go ahead and uh, wrap this up. It was a really fun conversation, and I appreciate it. Uh, so where can uh, people find all of your courses and any information about you and uh, your clinic and all that stuff? So you can go to somaticsenses.com, and that's the continuing ed business. So... We're in the process. Uh, we've got about 15 to 20 courses this fall, uh, mostly in Western Canada, a little bit in Eastern Canada, and we're uh, doing a lot of courses next year. So we'll probably be in the 50 to 100 courses across the country and across the states next year, uh, okay. bringing in a, a wide variety of people. So that's somaticsenses.com. Um, I'm based in Kelowna, BC, at a place called the Vallejo Health Clinic. Not Vallejo like the city in California, but V-A-L-E-O. Uh, ValeoHealthClinic.com. That's where I work, and that's where all the wonderful people I work with are as well. And if you want to find me on Facebook or Instagram, the name is Ben Stevens, the perfectly boring white guy name that there's probably a million of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it's Benjamin J. Stevens on Instagram. Oddly enough, I seem to be the only Benjamin Stevens with a middle initial J. So uh, Benjamin J. Stevens on Instagram, and then on Facebook, uh, it's just Benjamin Stevens and if you just look at my profile there, I have it set that you can see, like, my work history and stuff. You'll see that, you know, I was an instructor at Rock Tape, worked at the Vallejo Health Clinic, and owned somatic senses. So, okay. That's and uh, uh, what books would you recommend for people? Uh, are we talking personal development? Are we talking clinical? What are we talking? Let's, let's do one of each. <laughs> well, uh, personal development, I would probably say essentialism is one of my favorites. Okay. Um, and then clinically, ooh, there's a wide variety clinically. Um, actually, one of the ones that you mentioned earlier, The Sensitive Nervous System by uh, David Butler, would be a really yeah. a good place for a lot of people to start. Yeah, that's a really good or, one. Or if you're not familiar with the world of movement screening, it's Movement by Greg Cook. That's a good one, too. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thank uh, you, sir. I appreciate your time. Uh, all right. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Take care. All right.